We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome, everyone, to a very special edition of Legal Faceoff on WGN. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Rich Lenkoff. Uh, my co-host, Tina Martini, is uh, unavailable today due to a conflict. And, of course, our moderator, Sam Panianovich, is not here as well. But we wanted to put together um, uh, an all-star panel, which we have done, to pay tribute to the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who unfortunately passed away a few days ago. Uh, as our, all our listeners know, she is, has been a source of inspiration to us on the show and a frequent topic of many conversations podcast. So um, we really want to put together a panel to discuss her life and legacy and, of course, what the next term of the Supreme Court will bring given her profound absence. So with that said, first I want to um, extend my condolences to our, all our panelists. Um, obviously, this is a big loss to everyone, I think in the world, in the legal community, but especially uh, to all four of you for various reasons. So my deepest sympathies and condolences to all of you uh, for, your, for, for this loss. Um, let me introduce our panel because, again, we're very humbled to have um, an amazing group of, of individuals talking to us today. So we have from Northern Illinois University College of Law, Professor Emerita Elvia Ariola. Professor, welcome to Legal Faceoff. We have um, Paul Schiff, and Paul is the Walter S. Cox Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. Uh, Professor Berman clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We also have uh, another former Justice Ginsburg clerk, um, Rachel Wayner Apter. Uh, she is the director of the New Jersey Division on Civil Rights. Director, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you for having me. And finally, we have a veteran of our show, uh, always a great guest, always a pleasure to have her back, Professor uh, Carolyn Shapiro from Chicago Kent Law School. She is also the founder and co-director of Chicago Kent Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. She is also a former Supreme Court clerk. Professor Shapiro clerked for Justice Breyer. Professor, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So I want to ask first um, from Professor um, Ariola um, about the constitutional arguments that we're hearing the president unequivocally, in his opinion, has the Article 2, Section 2 power to immediately nominate a replacement. And in fact, to have that replacement confirmed very quickly uh, before the November election. What, what's your thoughts on that? My thought is that it's all political. And that um, we've always known that constitutional interpretation is going to be subject to politics. And, uh, you know, I had as part of my education in undergrad, I read Robert Dahl's 
um, um, theories about how the Supreme Court follows the election returns. And, you know, undoubtedly we have seen that. Um, I think what is really troubling is that we have the possibility of a replacement done so quickly and under a cloud of such intense divisive politics that to me that is more threatening than anything to the stability and order that we expect from our governmental institutions. That that balance of power has already been lost over and over. Uh, so the idea of a purely politicized choice uh, under circumstances where a man with incredible power, Mitch McConnell, will push through this nomination is extremely troubling. Professor Shapiro, you're obviously a keen observer of all of these uh, issues. And how do you feel about the Supreme Court likely, it looks like, taking up election law issues with a justice who will have, you know, almost in a record amount of days, it seems like, be on the bench, who will quickly be deciding whether President Trump was duly elected. I mean, if that's the way it goes, that seems to be a constitutional crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. It's hard to even get your head around. It's extraordinarily problematic on numerous fronts, not least of which because the president himself has said that's why he wants to get another nominee through as quickly as possible. So he isn't even pretending otherwise. Uh, one question I would want to know of any of whoever he ends up nominating is, did you talk about that with him? Did you talk about that with the White House counsel? Did you talk about that with the attorney general? Did you talk about that with anybody in the process of being vetted for this nomination? Uh, and, you know, what the answer, even if the answer is no, that doesn't alleviate the concern. You have somebody who might otherwise never be put on the Supreme Court uh, because we don't know how the election would come out in the position of then deciding the election and repaying, at least having the appearance of, of repaying a, a major, major political and professional favor. Director Wayner Apter and Professor Berman, I want to shift uh, the attention, of course, to Justice Ginsburg. Um, you obviously uh, got to know the justice very well during your clerkship for her. And from what I understand, from what we've read and from my knowledge of some other clerks, Working, I think for any justice, you become almost a family member, but especially it seems like with Justice um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that, that was really the case. So can you both talk to us about how she felt about becoming this cultural icon so late in her life, in her 80s? You know, we all knew, of course, for, you know, the majority of the 27 or so years she was on the court, that she was brilliant. She was a champion for the rights of underserved individuals and women. But really, later in her life, in the last few years, she became this pop cultural icon that's now, you know, known the world over. What was her feeling on that, you know, at a time in their lives when most judges are winding their careers down? Director Wayner, after, would you please touch on that? Um, I think that Justice Ginsburg 
loved um, the recognition in a way um, and was really happy to see things like babies dressed up as Justice Ginsburg for Halloween. Um, I recall sending her a photo actually of like a three month old dressed up as Justice Ginsburg for Halloween before that was common. Um, and she responded immediately. Um, and then of course she became a likeness on tote bags and she became tattooed on people's body parts. I don't know if she would have um, gone that far, but I think that she was happy to see that her life's work was recognized. Um, and by her life's work, I mean the project of getting the constitution and the country to recognize the fundamental equal dignity of all people, um, full stop. I, I think she uh, really uh, liked the the sort of pop cultural notoriety uh, because it was uh, a way of connecting to younger generations of people. She was very, very aware of her role as part of a long lineage. Um, she never failed uh, to take an opportunity uh, to call out by name uh, the pioneering women that came before her, the first woman lawyer, the first woman judge, uh, people who fought for the rights of women to vote, uh, and so forth. And I think seeing uh, a, this way uh, to connect with a younger generation, particularly a younger generation of girls, uh, and to see herself as part of passing that lineage on uh, to the next generation was really important to her. Professor, yeah, if, I, if I can comment on that, um, I think that's the part of her that was committed to education. That when I think about her work, and, in, and actually just today I'm teaching gender, sexuality, and the law, a field that exists because of the work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, but that from the very beginning, she, she helped shape the law by educating the justices on the court. You see it in the development of the case law of the principle that she is absolutely committed to, this bedrock principle of equality. Men and women are created equal. Don't limit them. But she was always educating them about the history the, the ways in which sex stereotyping harmed women, but really also harmed families and harmed society as a whole. Therefore, to me, when I see the way she got excited about, and if you see the documentaries, this way in which she says, well, how did I become, you know, this, this famous person? A lot of it is also, as, as Rachel just said, it's about recognizing that people need to know this and the younger generation needs to know this and that we have now potentially the rise of another feminist movement and that maybe she's played her part in that uh, again, which is a wonderful thing. Professor Shapiro, you argued before the Supreme Court in your role as Illinois uh, Solicitor General. When Facing Justice Ginsburg, um, did you feel a different weight given how fundamentally she changed women's rights? And also, was we've heard so much about you know her relatively diminutive stature, but you know in presence and in her thought process and in her writing, she was a giant. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to appear as a attorney before her? Well, obviously, uh, appearing in front of the Supreme Court at all was, was a great honor and uh, extremely exciting and stressful both. Um, but I remember very clearly a question she asked me pretty late in my argument 
that was, uh, it was really, it, 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 uh, it cut to the heart of what I was trying to say and sort of reframed it in a way that was extremely, it was actually very helpful to me. Um, but it was, it was so, um, it, it was so incisive and insightful. Um, and, and of course she said it in this, uh, in her, her very deliberate and precise and, and slow way. And everybody, you know, it, which was, had a way of bringing everybody's attention to her, right? Like you think about talking quietly and slowly might cause people not to pay attention. Of course, in her case, it was the opposite. People hung on her every word. That's amazing. Director Wayner Apter and, and Professor Berman, I'm always, we, we've had the great fortune on the show over the six years of having um, a lot of former Supreme Court clerks. I'm just fascinated by that world. We could, you know, I could talk for hours. So I always ask former clerks to bring us inside those rooms a little bit and give us a little peek <laughs> of what happens. You know, uh, Director Apter, Wayner Apter, when you started working for Justice Ginsburg, I'm sure you were intimidating intimidated you know anyone would be but did, did that wear off was she you know later much more approachable i mean to me she seemed you know like my bubby right she seemed like you know a a, a a nice older jewish woman who i grew up with so what was she like day to day um away from all the all the spotlight that we've seen um, Justice Ginsburg was an incredible um, boss, mentor, and friend, including in the years after I finished my clerkship during many visits that I um, went back and was able to have with her in chambers. And I think that um, in the beginning, it is incredibly overwhelming um, to be even in the Supreme Court building, um, let alone with someone as brilliant and also as hardworking and as meticulous as Justice Ginsburg. So her law clerks would work incredibly hard to make sure that draft opinions that we sent to her were of the absolute highest quality. We would have our fellow law clerks read them first. We worked very hard to make sure that our bench memos were error free because the justice was incredibly um, meticulous and precise and hardworking. And she actually believed that every single word in one of her opinions mattered and she wanted every word to be perfect. So there was definitely an intimidation factor there, but you're also correct that she was just a wonderful human being. And so she celebrated our birthdays with champagne and cake. She got to know my family. Um, she met both of my daughters who were ages three and one at the time and had really lovely and amazing interactions with them. She remembered things and followed up with me after the clerkship when I would visit her. She would remember things from one visit to the next. Um, so she was not only a brilliant legal mind who was able able to push the Supreme Court to recognize equal citizenship for women. She also um, walked the walk and talked the talk and was an incredible person to interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, there was you, yeah, you're an incredibly accomplished uh, professional, but uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg officiating your wedding must have been one of the highlights of, the, of your life. Uh, yeah, the, you know, again, I, it's both the work side and the uh, personal side. You know, on the one hand, uh, Rachel's exactly right. There's was not a word, not a comma, not a citation that she didn't labor over, edit, re-edit, change, 
make uh, you know exactly the the choice that she wanted. Um, and so there was this incredible focus on the work and doing the best work possible. And on the other hand, um, she cared so much about people, uh, not just her clerks. I mean, she I saw her edit and re-edit and re-edit letters in response to, you know, letters that she had gotten from fans uh, and kids who had written her letters, and she uh, was careful and meticulous about that as well. Um, but one day uh, I was uh, working and I got a buzz on the intercom, and uh, I had started dating a uh, another clerk, actually, in Justice Breyer and Blackman's chambers, someone who's now my wife. Uh, and uh, she buzzed me on the intercom and said, I didn't know you had a special friend at the court. Uh, you must have her up for tea. Uh, and uh, sure enough, the next week, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, came up and uh, she had the tablecloth laid perfectly and beautiful china laid out. And we had tea together. Uh, and so, you know, later, uh, uh, two years later, uh, when we got married, she performed the wedding ceremony. And uh, we feel uh, in very fundamental ways that uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer brought us together. That's amazing. Professor uh, Shapiro, you clerk for Justice Breyer. We've heard a lot about the you know, now famous relationship between ideological adversaries, Antonin Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. We haven't heard that much about the relations between other justices. What was Justice Breyer's relationship with uh, Justice Ginsburg like? Well, I think they were extraordinarily fond of each other and had enormous respect for each other. Uh, unlike Justice Scalia, Justice Breyer's uh, home uh, when he when we the court wasn't in session was in Boston, so uh, they had fewer opportunities to to socialize, I think, than she and Justice Scalia. But the the affection between them was just always absolutely palpable. Professor uh, Ariola, we just got a couple minutes left. Um, what what are your students talking about this week? And, and, and you know, over the loss of this great legal figure, um, and what kind of teachable, what kind of teachable moments uh, are you using to teach your students? Not just about Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but also the Supreme Court and what we're gonna you know, unfortunately, I think C is a very difficult time in our nation's history if things go the way we all expect it to go. Yeah, a couple of comments have already been made about her, uh, about her commitment to precise, careful, good writing and the ACLU tribute, uh, which talks about her co-founding the Women's Rights Project. Some of those lawyers uh, were interviewed and made statements about what it was like to work with her from the very beginning. This is actually a writing seminar, so I'm going to be emphasizing the importance of, of that commitment to hard work uh, and precise writing. Uh, some of the quotes made by um, some of those uh, attorneys uh, that I actually met because uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg started out as an ACLU attorney, and so did I. My very first job was as the Karpatkin Fellow, and I got to meet the attorneys uh, in the Women's Rights Project, which was co-founded by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And those women, and the cases that they were working on now by the 1980s, by this point she's a judge, uh, would end up having a tremendous impact on my, my year there as a clerk. I wasn't hired to work in the Women's Rights Project. I was learning about constitutional litigation. 
but it would definitely influence my decisions later on to go back to grad school um, and and to become become a, a, you know a, a law professor and a feminist legal theorist. And I'm very proud to say that you know that that association with the Women's Rights Project and the ACLU. But I think what's really important for them is to understand that. Um, that the law is a tool for incredible um, reform and that um, what is the constant thing that we have in our lives in this country is that we have change, but we also have the rule of law. And, and her commitment, her belief in the Constitution and her absolute care and concern that we uphold the law, I think is one of the most important things that uh, is a legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that she gave us a broader meaning and a real meaning to the principle of equality. Uh, and that that principle of equality, that expanded use of gender as a category of analysis would allow for the gay rights, you know, cases and her, and, and, and so that is, that is both a loss, but also we have her forever in her writings, in the opinions, in the life that she lived as described by her, uh, by her clerks. Uh, and that's one message that I hope that they will take from today's class and also her commitment to, to the Equal Rights Amendment. People have said that a lot of what happened because of the cases brought by her and the cases eventually developed, that it accomplished a lot of what was behind the Equal Rights Amendment you know, movement. And now we're looking at that as this uncertainty. Is it going to, are we going to, you know, and uh, other people can, can talk about the, the procedural difficulties on whether or not we have to go back or whether or not the enactment of the 27th Amendment overrides all of that and we should be able to move forward. But um, she still believed that it was important that we have an amendment and, uh, that, it, that would essentially put the test to the government every time it uses a classification because of sex. If I can add uh, one comment really about the rule of law, because I think it was very important to Justice Ginsburg, uh, you know, I think the, the, the biggest uh, problem with this particular moment, uh, and we have to see the big picture, I know uh, people referred to it earlier, um, we have what is essentially uh, a, uh, a minority uh, president, uh, voted on by a minority of the population. We have a Senate that is controlled by uh, Republicans who uh, far fewer people voted for the Republicans in the Senate than for the Democrats in the Senate. So they are also representing a minority of the population. Uh, and they are seeking to entrench their power uh, against a majority of what Americans want. Um, for decades. Uh, and that is deeply destabilizing to the rule of law uh, and to the viability of a constitutional democracy. You can't have a constitutional democracy if a permanent rural minority uh, is going to govern over a permanent urban and suburban majority. It's just a recipe for uh, destabilization. And uh, it's not clear to me that the country can survive this. I, I'll just, I agree with what uh, Professor Berman said, but I, I'll also add that it's, a constitutional democracy can't survive if one side is unwilling to accept losses. Uh, a democracy requires both gracious winning and gracious losing, which means sometimes you recognize you're going to lose, uh, and when you win, you can't do everything possible 
that might be technically constitutional, which is where we started, to entrench yourself and your party in power for all time. That's not how democracy can survive. Director Weiner, after last word. Um, I think that Justice Ginsburg recognized the importance of graciously winning and losing in that her opinions were known for um, not using bombastic language to um, lambast the other side, but instead for carefully explaining why she believed that her view of the law would be the one that would persist in the long run even if that meant that it needed to be a change of Congress or it needed to be a change in the court. And that's something that we should all remember going forward. Well, we will have, by all accounts, a nominee on Saturday. So on our next episode of Legal Faceoff next week, we'll be covering that nominee and the implications for the court and dive into some specific cases that the court will be dealing with, including, uh, of course, the Affordable Care Act case on our next show, so please stay tuned. We'll be having another all-star panel for that. But for now, uh, I wanna first again extend my condolences to all of you on this great loss and, and extend my heartfelt thanks for all the time you took with us this morning. Uh, Professor Schiff Berman had to leave early, but we really appreciate his time. And of course, Director Wainer after, Professor Shapiro, Professor Ariola, thank you so much for your valuable insight and for your time this morning on Legal Face Up. Thank you. Thank you very much.